After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. I'm trying to get to a kind of truth um, with compassion and and trying to be in the present moment. I think a lot of theater is trying to conjure presence and I think that is a, a spiritual practice. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Meta Hour podcast with Sharon Salzberg. My name is Lily Cushman, and I produce this podcast. And we're here today with episode 211 and venturing forward, continuing with a series that I may have told you was ending a few weeks ago, <laughs> but we've decided to continue the real life series here on the podcast. So today's episode is a conversation with the playwright Sarah Rule. You may know of Sarah, she has been on the podcast once prior, and this particular interview was part of the Living an Authentic Life Summit that happened a few months ago. And so this interview was on the final day of the summit, which was talking about the qualities that emerge from our life on the path, from living an engaged life with spiritual practice. So this is a really interesting conversation about the way that creativity emerges as kind of a byproduct of our spiritual path. And I'll tell you a little about Sarah. She is an award-winning playwright, American playwright, an author, an essayist, and a professor. Her plays have been on Broadway, they've been across the country, internationally. Her most popular plays are The Clean House, In the Next Room. She's originally from Chicago and received her MFA from Brown. She also won a MacArthur Fellowship in 2006, and she teaches at the Yale School of Drama and lives in Brooklyn. And a lot of this conversation is kind of her journey becoming a writer and this idea of emergence, how the dawning of clarity or beautiful things like creativity and wisdom kind of naturally emerge. It's a lot about creative process and moving from places of contraction into states of creativity. So there's a lot of great stuff in here. But before we get to the episode, a couple of quick announcements. 
As you may have heard, we have just started another series here on the podcast that is all centered around mental health. In the coming months, we're going to continue to be releasing episodes once a week and alternating between the mental health series and this real life series. So part of why I'm mentioning this mental health series is because we would love to hear from you. If you have any topics in that arena, what we're exploring in the series is is really the way that spiritual practice, whether it's Buddhist philosophy or meditation practice, how that can support mental health and also really just working to destigmatize mental health. So as part of that, we are open to your topic suggestions or if you have any particular questions, you can shoot us an email to admin at SharonSalzberg.com. That's A-D-M-I-N at SharonSalzberg.com. Also, I want to point you to the resource list that we're putting together as part of that series which has a pretty big variety of resources, things like how to find a therapist who's trained in mindfulness. So you can find that at SharonSalzberg.com. And yes, please reach out if you have mental health topics that you'd like to hear included in the series. So let's get into today's episode, the real life series with Sharon Salzberg and Sarah Rule. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and welcome back to the summit. Today is the final day of the summit, and we're exploring the emergence of the many good things that come from our path, including creativity. I'm joined by award-winning American playwright, author, essayist, and professor, Sarah Rule. Sarah's plays have been produced on Broadway and across the country, as well as internationally, and translated into 14 languages. Among her most popular plays are Eurydice, 2003, The Clean House, 2004, and In the Next Room, 2009. Originally from Chicago, she received her MFA from Brown University, where she studied with Paula Vogel. She's the recipient of a Helen Merrill Emerging Playwrights Award, a Whiting Writers Award, a Penn Center Award for Mid-Career Playwrights, a Steinberg Distinguished Playwright Award, and a Lilly Award. She's a member of 13P and New Dramatists, and won the MacArthur Fellowship in 2006. She teaches at Yale School of Drama and lives in Brooklyn with her family. Thank you so much for being here today. It's such an honor to be here and get to talk to you. It's such a privilege. Well, thank you. I mean, you're such an incredible playwright and author, and I'm delighted to chat with you today about your work and your creative process. And as you know, I'm a deep lover of theater as an art form. It's been a while <laughs> since I've been in the theater. Um, and as I've shared with you before, and listeners of my podcast, The Meta Hour, know uh, when I was a child, my dream profession actually was to be a playwright. So when I got asked that question, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? I'd say a playwright. It's not too late. I really want to see a play by you. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Well, I've, I've, I've uh, discussed my problems, my issues, you know, <laughs> uh, which is, first of all, I don't know how to write a play, but more deeply, I don't really know the story. There's not something I'm on fire mm-hmm. to tell. Mm-hmm. But I feel if I find it and I'm 
sometimes I think I may have, um, then I'll learn how to write a play. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. A play is really nothing more than conversation with a little, with a little story running underneath. So you're, you're brilliant at conversation. So I'm sure. Well, thank you. Pick it up in a day. There's something about it. Plus the, the deeply collaborative nature mm-hmm. of the form, which is also challenging. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, that uh, I just moved to do it. So, yeah. Um, so our theme in the summit today is centered on the idea of emergence. How with the dawning of clarity, kind of seeing things more as they are, not as we've maybe held them to be or been taught they were, like beautiful things like creativity and wisdom emerge. So it's not this kind of like determined process, like I'm going to get wisdom or I'm going to be boldly creative. It just happens. It comes Mm -hmm. out of us because we've just put our body, mind, our being in a position where it's almost like inevitable. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what needs to emerge. So I want to talk to you more about your creative process and how do you experience a shift from when we're most contracted, you know, most held in, most feeling I can't do it, um, to actually doing it. Mm-hmm. I love the word emergence to talk about writing. And some of my most amazing teachers I think have taught me that even though it's not in the guise of Buddhism, but is more in the guise of improvisation. So I had one teacher, Maria Irene Fornes, who I studied with in Mexico. And she would always say, you know, don't treat your characters like little puppets. Don't tell them what to do. Don't kind of manipulate them. Let them speak, which is a form of emergence and a form of listening, really. I think we can feel trapped um, when we're writing, if we think it all has to come out of us, as opposed to listening to what is emerging from us. And it's a, it's a fine distinction, but I do think writers are often wonderful listeners. Um, most of the writers I love the best are, are better listeners than they are, are talkers. Although, of course, there are some writers who are also great talkers. Um, but the poets I really love and the playwrights I really love have that quality of deep listening where I know they're also listening to their characters. And I think it also comes from a place of play and um, playing with two in the theater. What's between? What's between you and your collaborator, what's between two actors, um, that that's also where things start to emerge. So the idea that you're not just one lonely self trying to spew forth, but you're, you're engaging in the, in the dialogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. There's you and there's me and there's the space between and is what is born in, in that, yeah. in that space. Yeah. And I think that's one thing that's wonderful and weird about playwriting is that a lot of writers are comfortable with isolation, but not necessarily comfortable playing in a room. So I think with playwriting, you have to have the social self with all of the the beauty of collaboration and all the pain of collaboration and also being content to sit in a room for 24 hours Mm -hmm. and, and doing your writing. Well, when I was writing this book, Faith, and struggling quite a bit with it, I talked to this writing coach, um, 
and great writer, Susan Griffin. Mm -hmm. And uh, she said to me, you've got to stop thinking of yourself as the person who's writing this book and start thinking mm -hmm. of yourself as the first person who gets to read this book, mm -hmm. which was perfect, you know, mm -hmm. because especially as I undertake topics that feel ponderous, you know, or deep or important or, or meaningful, mm -hmm. I, I kind of get, my writing gets worse, you know, and I get mm -hmm. and more mm -hmm. elevated and, you know, right. it's like highfalutin. It's like, get down, mm -hmm. you know, just like, mm. just say it. And, um, you know, I always need reminders. Just like, just get down. Just, just be here in some way. That's so beautiful. I suspect that would be really hard feeling like um, people are looking to you for wisdom. You know, with playwriting, writing something really, really dumb is sometimes the answer. <laughs> Uh -huh, <laughs> or uh -huh. necessarily looking to you for wisdom, even though um, I guess some wisdom can come out of something seemingly really dumb. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> well, do you find that the act of writing for you is a kind of spiritual practice, like getting out of the way, things like that? It is more and more and more and more consciously. I think it always has been holy to me since I was even a kid and writing a poem here and there. And I remember uh, when I wrote one of my first plays, Eurydice, which is a play about the Orpheus myth told from Eurydice's point of view. And my, um, my aunt came to see it and she's a Tibetan Buddhist. And she said, oh, there's so much Dharma in here and there's so much Bardo in here. And I didn't know what she was talking about at all. You know, it took me years to understand what she was talking about. But I think Teaching is, is holy to me. Teaching is a spiritual practice to me. And writing is insofar as we are trying to get to a kind of truthful. When I, I'm using the royal we, I don't know why. I guess I should own it. I, I'm trying to get to a kind of truth um, with compassion and, and trying to be in the present moment. I think a lot of theater is trying to conjure presence. And I think that is a, a spiritual practice. Interesting. And um, I found your book of pandemic poetry, by the way, Love Poems in Quarantine, uh, so compelling that first year of quarantine, um, oh, or lockdown, you. I think is the technical term. Um, <laughs> uh, since I was never ill, but I was I was not in quarantine per se, but everyone calls it quarantine, yeah. so I understand. Uh, when the world yeah. as we knew it just seemed to stop, it just offered this odd yeah. sense of spaciousness and, and shrinking. For many of us, time was just immeasurable, while our social world, you know, our sense of context shrank down to just squares in a Zoom call. And I were wonder yeah. I'm wondering how you were tapping into your creative spirit during such a challenging time. Um, like I wrote two books during that time, you know, did you have Amazing. specific activities or practices you did that helped connect you with a creative flow? Yes. A couple things. One was I did, um, through the Zen center, they had a kind of meditation a day program, which was, which was great on zoom. And then the more I was meditating every day, I started writing a haiku a day and that's what led to love poems in quarantine and I think it was also the fact that I was out of the city for some of um, the lockdown and I hadn't been as close an observer of the seasons changing um, when I live in Brooklyn. 
And I think because culture, you know, theater and culture and, and, and being in the dark with other people is usually my form of, um, of art making suddenly nature was there and was, it was all the culture I needed. It had all the transformation I needed. It had all the novelty I needed. And so I felt actually really happy to be present with, with those changes that I was seeing out my window. And I was not writing plays. I couldn't for the life of me write a play. I felt so sad that my art form was shuttered and it just seemed strange to imagine myself back into a rehearsal room instead of where I was, which was staring out the window at, you know, leaves changing. Yeah. I mean, all expectations and for some people, their sense of who they are and what they did, it was, it was really shattered. You know, I uh, went right into teaching on zoom and, Mm -hmm. um, it was, you know, it was fine. And and I think partly from my life of writing, um, that part of me, I felt a, a very strong, I feel a very strong connection when I, even if I can't see a person, you know, if I can't see their face mm-hmm. in a little square, um, I just know they're out there and that we're connecting mm-hmm. and that uh, we're both here in, in a very full way. And I know mm-hmm. other teachers, of course, and presenters who, uh, it's very, very hard. They feel like they're talking to nobody. But um, mm. I really felt tremendous connection with a lot of people throughout that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, you know, uh, there was all that uncertainty. And for other people, like theater people, um, when will it come back? Will it come back? You know, mm-hmm. what's coming back? Yeah. And uh, it was tremendous upheaval. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like you were, in a way, you'd prepared all your life for for lockdown because yeah. you'd been meditating? Yeah, totally. You <laughs> know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and people said to me, you know, you've been getting ready for this your whole life, you know. And I thought, well, yeah, it's actually true. I'm used to silence, you know, at the times, and mm-hmm. it's not that I saw nobody, but I'm used to finding that sense of connection even without kind of socializing. Yeah. And and resting with it and feeling the profundity of it and the, the beauty of it. So I didn't feel uh, so much, oh, I'm lacking connection, mm-hmm. but it's different. It's so different. Like I came up here to Barry, Massachusetts, uh, where I am right now, uh, from New York City, thinking I was coming up for two weeks. I can't even remember the moment. I thought, I'll just yeah. go up there for two weeks and ride it out, you know. So I came up here in <laughs> March of 2020 and. You know, April, May, June, July, yeah. Yeah. I felt similarly when I was teaching. I felt that the intention of people to be present was as as good in some ways as being present. But I felt so bad for the students because I felt like while some people I knew had been meditating their whole life to to get to the place where they could be alone for that period of time, I thought these, you know, 22-year-olds have no practice being in this deep isolation it must have been so shocking and, and really the resilience of the species um, during that time is astonishing looking back at it. So, you know, the first year, and then of course there was like the second year and the third year. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, you know, again about specific activities or practices. Like I found myself in my meditation practice, I went right back to the beginning and it was just with my breath. 
like the simplest of foundational exercises. And of course, loving kindness. Um, I used to really relish practicing loving kindness meditation, walking down the streets of New York or sitting on an airplane and sitting uh, in the subway. It's all gone. You know, yeah. so remembering um, to hold people in my heart and finding out, you know, that uh, in the beginning, it was different than as things evolved, you know, in the culture in general, where there's a quality of caring that emerged and, and it was very beautiful. Um, you know, being mm-hmm. so connected to people in New York, I heard a lot of New York stories and, and mm-hmm. there were, you know, the, the person would say to me, I've lived in this apartment for 12 years. I never even knew my neighbor's names. And now mm-hmm. we all have one another's phone numbers and we're checking in yeah. on each other. And it's quite extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the first time I touched someone's hand casually after the lockdown, you know, on Montague Street in Brooklyn, where I buy my dog food. I remember the first time buying my dog food in person and exchanging money um, and, and our hands touched when he gave me change. And he said something like, you know, here's your change, my friend. And I just felt like weeping because all of those casual inter- interactions with strangers hadn't been happening. Yeah. So in 2021, right in the midst of everything, you published a memoir, mm-hmm. Smile, about your experience with Bell's palsy, which is a form of sudden facial paralysis that for 90% of people, it dissipates on its own. But for you, it did not. So can you tell us what moved you to share your story and how sharing it offered you a doorway to healing? Sure. It was hard for me to come to the decision to write about it and Partly it was my husband suggested it because he said, you write about what you're thinking about and what makes you suffer. And this is the thing you've been thinking about and suffering about. And so I sort of tried and it it started pouring out of me. And I realized that I hadn't made any sense of it for myself because I never talked about it. Um, It was sort of written on my face, but I had no control of the narrative. So it was quite literally healing for me because the crazy story is once it came into this world, into the world, this doctor called me and said, I actually think you have um, neurological Lyme disease. That's why you're not getting better. And he called me out of the blue and I was so shocked. And I thought, no, that can't be. I was tested for Lyme 11 years ago. Well, 50% of the tests are, you know, it doesn't show up. And in fact, um, we'd been in Long Island when I was pregnant. My husband had gotten a bullseye rash, and it was not long after that I got Bell's palsy. So I'm just finally now getting treated for that. Um, and, and I thought it was this crazy story about the healing power of literature, but in this sense, it was like the writer getting healed <laughs> you know, by a reader. So I feel very grateful. No, that's amazing. And, and in a way, it's not entirely surprising that Mm-hmm. In your examination and the act of sharing your experience of the suffering, so much more healing was possible. Yeah. Um, it's really kind of amazing just to contemplate that. Yeah. Can you say some more about the importance and benefit of the collective sharing of suffering? Yes. I think that there's so much shame attached to suffering sometimes, and we're not even aware there's shame until we speak about the suffering it wouldn't have occurred to me that I felt ashamed of Bell's palsy because logically there's no reason for it. It's just something my body did. 
But once I started talking about it, I realized I, I did have a great deal of shame about not getting better or not being able to express myself. Um, and then once I expressed it, all these people reached out to me and back to me. And sometimes it was a stranger saying, oh, yes, I too had Bell's palsy. The experience was more painful than childbirth. I just hid in a closet for you know three weeks. Other people who I was close with would tell me stories of how, oh, I have this tick. And um, when I'm on stage, I always try to face upstage if I have to eat because my eye closes when I eat and I'm really ashamed of it. And I thought, and I've never told anyone that. And I thought, my God, um, I never would have known. I do not judge you for it. And I was so surprised he had shame around it. So I do think speaking it out loud can um, take some power away from it. And it's also that, um, what do they call it? Tend and befriend, the yeah. opposite of fight or flight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> tend, tend and befriend. Yeah. I think that kind of connection that can get made through our imperfections and our suffering is is really profound. It's like with social media, we think we're connecting through images of perfection. Actually, that, that makes people feel alienated and isolated. But sharing our fragility, I think, really invites care. Well, the tragedy of our conditioning is often that, um, you know, we had insult to injury in effect that we hurt mm -hmm. about something uh, physically, emotionally, somehow. And then on top of that, we have the sense of permanence. You know, this is the only mm -hmm. thing I will ever feel forever, or I'm not okay. You know, I should have been able to stop this. I should have been able to control this. Or uh, mm -hmm. maybe most corrosively, I am the only one. Mm -hmm. the only one and, and there is such a tremendous um transformation that happens simply knowing that's not true and it's not like misery loves company either you know it's there's something so um awful in feeling you are the only one mm -hmm. and uh not only do you feel aberrant you know you're different you're you don't measure up um but uh, it's so lonely, you know, and, and so like, what do you do with all this feeling? And mm -hmm. um, and yet, even just understanding we're not alone uh, is such a powerful bridge right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so um, woven through your incredible teachings. And oh, um, I just feel comforted just hearing you say those words. I feel mm -hmm. delighted. Yeah, because we're never alone. You know, it's it's the myth that mm -hmm. surrounds our lives. And I'm also thinking of um, listening to uh, my friend Bob Thurman, who uh, up until recently was a professor of Buddhist studies at Columbia University. And um, he lost his eye when he was very young. Uh, he must have been like somewhere between 18 and 20, something like that. And uh, he was underneath a car when the jack slipped and the car fell on his eye. His head, wow. and he, he lost his eye. And oh my God. Not long after that, he became connected to this uh, actually Mongolian lama teaching Tibetan Buddhism um, in New Jersey, and uh, he became his first teacher. And, and his teacher, Geshe Wangel, was the teacher of many of the early scholars of Tibetan Buddhism, the translators, and so on. And um, Bob once quoted uh, Geshe Wangel to me about the loss of his eye. And this was when I uh, had written the book Faith and had talked uh, 
tremendous amount about my own childhood suffering and trauma in that book. And so Bob read the book, and then he quoted Geshe Wangil to me, which was, um, you should never be ashamed of your suffering. Mm. He said, you lost an eye, but you gained a thousand eyes of wisdom. So beautiful. So Yeah, it was very beautiful. Because we are. It's kind of a very odd thing of emotional baggage Mm -hmm. that we carry. Mm -hmm. Um, It reminds me, too, of Alice Walker. Um, I guess I I can't remember what happened to her eye, but one of her eyes is either clouded over or is a glass eye. And there's a beautiful passage in one of her books about how she was worried about her daughter noticing the imperfection of her eye for the first time. And instead, when her daughter pointed at the eye, she said, Oh, mom, I can see the whole world in that eye. It's like a planet. Mm. You know, this, uh, this feeling that other people will judge us. And sometimes from these unlikely places, we'll get complete unconditional love where we least expect it. That was fun for me in in writing uh, this most recent book, real life. I'm kind of seeing the range of practices that are all basically saying exactly what you just said and how we each find our own expression of that that's meaningful to us, you know. And Mm -hmm. um, from uh, one of my Tibetan teachers has this practice called handshake practice, which is like a a very um, primary kind of mindfulness. It's like what arises within he calls beautiful monsters. Mm -hmm. Sonny Rinpoche is his name. And – and what do you do? You shake their hand. You don't like try to pulverize them. You don't try to annihilate them. You don't absorb them so that you're taken over either. It's like, here I am, you know, it's like a friend. But a friend who's like a little older and kind of with it and, and in charge, you know. Like, okay, here we are, you know, let's hang out. It's okay. You know, we don't have to be so afraid and and so on. And, um, you know, from that to – uh Dan Siegel talking about the uh, window of tolerance, like what is the range of feeling, of emotion, of uh, physical sensation, anything that we can tolerate before clinging or condemning, in other words. And how do we widen that mm-hmm. so that we can be that present with so many different things and even just bringing in the suffering so that uh, you don't feel so different and, other people don't have to think they're so different is very important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so beautiful. I want to go shake a monster's hand immediately. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful monster. I have so many. <laughs> don't we all? <laughs> yeah. So uh, one of the many techniques that's used in different meditation practices is naming and investigating what's mm-hmm. present. So, Mm-hmm. Um, I think even in uh, current Western psychology, there's some phrase like we name it to tame it, uh-huh. you know, like not to go crazy as a word person, you know, which mm-hmm, I used mm-hmm. to do, like I used to sit there in India in my meditation thinking, is this pain or is this discomfort or is it something in between? Uh-huh. What's it? So it was like mm-hmm. a complete waste of time and basically resembled <laughs> somebody sitting down and reading a thesaurus. So, you know, you don't have to do that, but. Uh, there's some way of just saying it's anger, you know, it's not mm-hmm. my anger. It's not forever anger. It's not that horrible state anger. You know, it's like it's anger and, mm-hmm. and it brings us into a different relationship with what is. And in some ways 
um, the magic of writing as well and creating uh-huh. uh, has to do with relationship. How does one thing relate to the next? How does one uh-huh. person relate to the next in what I am creating? And, um, and seeing it that way actually helped me a lot as well, that uh, there are patterns, there are processes that we miss because we're so upset, you know, mm-hmm. when we can actually pay more attention in a, a simpler way, then we get to see it, and, and it's very different. And is it better to say it's anger as opposed to I'm angry? To take the eye out, Does, is that labeling helpful? I mean, it just depends. I think it depends on where you feel out of balance, mm-hmm. you know. If it's, like, nearly unbearable to say, I'm angry, that's interesting, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but more in terms of, I think, that ultimate right relationship, it would be, like, there is anger, you know. Mm-hmm. We're not denying that we feel it, and we shouldn't deny it, and... We're not trying to push it away, but um, the difference is one psychologist pointed out to me once the difference between saying I am angry and I feel anger is an important distinction. Yeah. Because when I am angry, then I am, you know, it's like the totality of my being. When I feel something, that's what I feel. And what am I going to do about it? Maybe the next question. So it's more kind of along the lines of that relationship. Do other languages have a different relationship to the emotions? So they don't say, I am angry, but there is anger? Uh, well, certainly in practice, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know about language per se, but um, although, you know, in Tibetan, there's no word for emotion. What does that mean? Huh. Um, the uh, word for heart and the word for mind are famously the same word huh. in Asian languages, you know, Tibetan, Chinese, and Sanskrit, and so on. And and that's always fun, you know, because seeing a a Western person with our dichotomy, our split, mm-hmm. which is a construct, it's not inherent, and it's not the way uh, an Asian person through language would see the world. You know, but watching a Western person approaching a, let's say, a Tibetan teacher and saying, um, "I have to get out of my mind into my heart," mm-hmm. and what you just said to them is, "I have to get out of my heart into my heart." Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I had my mind into my mind and it makes no sense god i love it i did did not know that so to like to translate mindfulness even the choice of that is it really heartfulness or mind heartfulness yeah i mean it is and that's implicit Mm -hmm. part of our problem in translation and i don't know if you even feel this in translating ordinary activity into some creative medium um is what we know deeply and is implicit in that translation maybe needs to be explicit for other people. Mm-hmm. You know, so I began my meditation practice in 1971 in January, and the word mindfulness always had layers of meaning to it, of heartfulness and kindness and not giving yourself such a hard time as usual and and so on. And it's only been more recently as the word has gotten so popular that I hear people saying, well, it's a cold word. It's really like clinical. Maybe we should call it warm mindfulness or mm. we should call it kindfulness or mm-hmm. heartfulness. Or, uh, and I just call it mindfulness because yeah. that is what I'm used to and that I know what that means. What is the word in Tibetan? For mindfulness? Yeah. 
I don't know about mindfulness. The word in Sanskrit for mindfulness is sati, right. S-A-T-I. Right. And the word for heart and mind is citta, C-I-T-T-A. Right. right. I'm so lucky I get a teaching with you tonight. <laughs> I feel lucky. We can talk about being a playwright. I want to study with Paula Vogel. You should. She would love you. I mean, yeah, she does these, these boot camps from time to time. I'll let you know if one happens. Yeah. Yeah, that would be great. Um, I was uh, teaching once at the, not at the Yale School of Drama. This was also on Zoom. Um, which has come up lately, and uh, is it's just fascinating to me to see how a, a mode of creativity like that um, can encompass so much awareness. Mm-hmm. You know, because that's what you're doing is you're evoking a whole world. Mm-hmm. What um, I know you talked about, so Lynn Nottage, right at the yeah. Signature Theater. Yeah. I know Lynn, and yeah. um, I'm working right now at Signature Theater, actually, on a play that should have been done during the pandemic, but now I'm finally rehearsing about my former student, um, Max Ritfo, who was a, a wonderful poet, um, mm-hmm. who who also was always thinking about mindfulness and meta meditation and poetry as a spiritual practice. So it seems fitting that I that I get to talk to you just as I'm going into tech for that play. It's so great. Hmm. So do you find that in writing um, the act of naming some taboo topics, painful topics, uh, has an impact in disarming them for you and your audience? I do. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind with that is shame around sex because they wrote a play called In the Next Room or The Vibrator Play. And even just having, you know, this was – I guess 15 years ago or so, but having the audience have to call and ask for tickets to the vibrator play was probably deeply uncomfortable for some people. Um, And I have a friend, Bruce Norris, who's a playwright who I think really each of his plays sort of lances a boil of shame and nastiness in, in, in our, in our culture. So I think there are different ways to do it. I mean, there's, there are ways to gently name their, you know, surgical excavations, their boil lancings. Um, there's so many different ways to name something that's unnameable in the culture. And sometimes I feel like theater will pretend to excavate an issue that's sort of a hot topic, hot button issue in our culture, um, but but actually it doesn't it just um, makes you think as th- as though you thought about it but it's not experiential mm-hmm. and i guess my favorite kind of theater feels more like an enactment more like more like a ritual more like you're partaking somehow i think something that um sentence that kind of encapsulates my uh hopes and aspirations of myself as a writer it was actually um, Tommy Kale who directed Hamilton, where he said something like, mm-hmm. in some interview, he said, everything in our play seems inevitable, and none of it was. Mm. And I thought, that's what I want. Mm-hmm. I want to look at a house and not think, God, that architect had some amazing conceited ideas, you know. 
But look at that right. flourish, that architecture. I just want to feel like it grew there. It's inevitable. Yeah. It's natural. Oh, that's how it is. That's how it, of course, that's how it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do feel like one is aiming for a kind of simplicity and apparent effortless quality. And, you know, you look at an Elizabeth Bishop poem, like the art of losing isn't hard to master. And it's like a palimpsest. Um, if you look at the, all the drafts and it seems completely inevitable with the rhymes, that, but there was so much effort that went into making it look effortless. So um, I also think about that question of sort of right effort, you know, that, that, um, there's the grace that pours in artistically or can, but you can't just sit there and, and conjure it. You know, you have to plonk your butt in a chair and, and do the work of it. And then unbidden in these little pockets of grace, um, some little fairy will seem to do the writing for you. Or I joke that my dog is writing for me, my dog Minerva, because she comes and sits at my feet so my kids always think oh Minerva's writing your emails now mom <laughs> That's so but taking that taking the eye out of it in a way taking the ego out of it yeah that, that's part of what I really loved about that concept of wisdom because the ego is, is also it becomes something we hold more lightly you know and so then there's there's just space and there's some possibility of very new things emerging, which is great. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, for theater students talking about collaboration, holding, holding the ego lightly is, is essential and, and not always easy. I would imagine not, and no lack of desire to blame, you know, <laughs> like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you hadn't dressed them that way, it would have been. Huge success. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What led you to your interest in meditation? I'm so curious. I'm trying to remember the timing of it. You know, when did I first become interested? I think the interest probably started with yoga a long time ago, and that was a little portal in. Um, my husband is also half Thai, half Australian. And so he was kind of born into some meditative mm -hmm. practices. Um, and too, it's funny that we talked about Maria Irene Fornes, one of my teachers who, who would have us meditate and visualize before writing. And I think Irene came to it through yoga as well and not through, um, not through any kind of defined, defined spiritual practice, but um, she was always more about attention. You know, how can you, how can you visualize? How can you see? How can you focus your attention? And it's really the same, mm -hmm. the same thing. I once uh, was sitting in the room in the audience when the Dalai Lama was on a panel at, uh, Emory University, and the panel was sponsored by the art department, so it was about creativity. And um, it was Alice Walker and Richard Gere and and the Dalai Lama. And 
the question came up. It was the first question, and it's the question I'm so often asked about: uh, Does great art have to come out of great suffering? Um, and they were all interesting. You know, Alice Walker said that her early teachers believed that, and so she used to believe that. But she felt the happier she got, the better her poetry got. And Richard talked about being an angry young man, and then the Dalai Lama. Um, there's just a certain look he gets on his face when the conversation is like, "What, really?" You know. And so he he said, uh, "People are always taking me places and pointing at things, you know, like a painting and a piece of architecture, you know, something, and saying, isn't it beautiful? Isn't it wonderful?'" And he said, "In Tibet, we have a belief that the worth or the beauty of a piece of art depends on what happened to the creator in the process." Like, did they get kinder? Did they get more aware? Did they get more present? Then it's a beautiful piece of art. And I was thinking, we don't think that way, really, do we? Mm, that's so beautiful. How is the artist changed by making the art? Yeah, the idea that art only comes through great suffering really <clears throat> neglects joy and really neg neglects the concept of play and playfulness, which is a very joyful thing. And I think the kind of confessional mode of uh, telling your telling your trauma on the page, being the only kind of authentic way to make art, really really leaves out the spirit of play. Uh, which again is is in dialogue with other people. Uh, the um, the tragic impulse I think is more solipsistic, and play and humor I think are wonderful correctives. And I always think it's amazing how how funny um, the Dalai Lama is too. You know how there's always a, a smile and a twinkle, and um, I think sometimes people don't. You know, it's like comedy never wins the Oscar because it's not serious. It's not, it's not suffering. It's, it's, it's less artful. But I think comedy can be so artful and so wise because it, it creates a gap between the suffering and, and, the, um, and the person doing mm -hmm. the suffering. <laughs> so, so to me, that gap is kind of, kind of wonderful. In tragedy, the gap closes and, you know, everybody's suffering together. But I do think that catharsis, that idea of suffering together, you know, you're not the only one suffering. That's to me what, what makes it artful um, to, to be in a kind of ritual space where we're communally, we're acknowledging that everybody suffers. That's wonderful. So here we are in another uh, yours, so to speak. You're you're taking medication for the Lyme disease. You've got. It's my first day. I I have my um, my little. I did my port myself. Oh. See, uh, I have my IV wow. antibiotics. My first day. So I feel like it's a good sign that oh, I'm wow. talking to you. Yeah. It's like medicine Buddha day. Wow, that's <laughs> amazing. I will do lots and lots of of loving kindness for you. Really. Oh, thank you. Um, it's odd, I'm sure, to have a diagnosis where the hardest thing of all is kind of getting the diagnosis. Yeah. 
It's so crazy. I mean, I, I won't go into a rant about Lyme and the medical establishment, but it's it's bizarre. I mean, it's like a war right now. Um, I was just lucky. I finally went to Stony Brook and they gave me a spinal tap and there it was, but it was really hard to find for a long time. But yeah, it's, and there's maybe a deeper thing you're pointing at about mm, the length of time to get a diagnosis. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what to say about it. I had some rage at first when I finally got a diagnosis because it took so long mm -hmm. to get one. Um, but I allowed myself, I think, I hope three days of rage <laughs> and then went on to some, some gratitude that I finally have a diagnosis. See, now I'm stuck in playwright mode, wishing, wishful thinking, like <laughs> three days of rage. That's a title for something. That could be a play. <laughs> what would it look like? It's not a bad title. Is it already a movie or something? Three Days of Rage? Maybe I should read Three Days of Rage. That's a good one. <laughs> well, I, I, I had decided at one point that the plays that when Tony Awards have to have a scene of men yelling at each other, it's just, it's like almost disqualifying to not. So then I was going to write a play called Men Yelling at Men, but I didn't know what they'd be yelling about. <laughs> Three Days of Rage. Well, uh, the Tony Awards this year, this is kind of landing this whole conversation in a certain mm -hmm. time. And of course, it's hopefully timeless as well. But the Tony Awards this year and 2023 are going to be um, up in Washington Heights at the uh, oh. theater that was my childhood movie theater. No kidding. And uh, I went uh, in one of my returns to New York. It was one of the very few events I've been to in three years, um, which was a, a, a moth reading, you know, mm -hmm. storytelling organization. Moth, yeah. And it was like in the lobby and it was only like 30 people and everyone had to wear a mask and, you know, so uh, I felt um, that, you know, I could go and I went and uh, it was incredible. And I was looking at the, this is in the lobby. It's a very ornate mm -hmm. theater. Uh, I was looking at the walls and they're like all these Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Yeah. And I called over somebody from the theater and I said, is that the Buddha? And they didn't know, you know, yeah. but I thought, God, I grew up with this, you know, like. How funny. Like, this was my, this was my movie theater. Yeah. And so if you go to the Tonys, look yeah. at the walls huh. in the lobby. I'm so curious now why, like what, what would have been happening at that time that that muralist would have painted that? Yeah. I think it's like Baroque. I don't know. It's like some stylistic thing, you know. Yeah. Let's have a golden cherub, except it's the Buddha. Oh, I didn't even know. And so no more Radio City Music Hall this year. That's great. Not this year. I yeah. don't know. I don't know, you know. Yeah. Hmm. But uh, I just thought, gosh, that's so incredible. Yeah. Hmm. Surrounded by bodhisattvas from a young age. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. What's that little being? <laughs> yeah. That's a Buddha. <laughs> So may it be a blessed, blessed time for you with lots of oh. uh, movement and, you know, possibility being actualized and creativity flowing. Well, thank you. And, and you too. It's, it's really, you give people so much, um, you know, liquid gold in your teachings. And I'm, I'm so grateful to be one of the recipients and Thank you. Yeah, so honored to be in dialogue with you, and I'm sure your book will Thank you. bring more more people, more happiness, which is a good thing. Um, did you want me to read a poem? But I do. I, I was going to say I would love it if you could leave us 
with a poem from um, Love Poems in Quarantine, the name of which I got wrong earlier, <laughs> that might speak to the possibility of creativity, even amidst our most challenging times. Maybe I'll read a tiny haiku because haiku, haiku are so short. And then I'll read a poem about laundry. Um, crossing. The water rushes and it doesn't stop rushing. We help each other cross. And then this is, I felt like I was doing laundry all the time during quarantine, even though I don't know why there'd be more laundry, but uh, what we are folding when we're folding laundry in quarantine. Standing four feet apart, you take one edge of the sheet, I take the other. We walk toward one another, creating order, like solemn campers folding a flag in the early morning light. But this is no flag, this is where we love and sleep. There was a time we forgot to do this, to fold with and toward one another, to make the edges clean together. My grandmother might have said, there is always more laundry to do, and that is a blessing because it means you did more living, which means you get to do more cleaning. We forgot for a while that one large blanket is too difficult for one chin to hold and two hands to fold alone. That there is more beauty in the walking toward the fold and in the shared labor. No, well, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, yeah, thank you for joining me. And as always, it's really such a pleasure to share time with you and learn about your experience of creativity and you've inspired me to go on and, you know, check out new pathways. Um, oh, well, likewise. And if I get a plus one to the Tony awards ever, I'm going <laughs> <Okay. laughs> to learn more about Sarah's incredible library of work. You can visit her website, which is Sarah rule playwright. It's S A R A H R U H L playwright.com. Hey folks, thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Sharon's different offerings, her different virtual teachings, online courses, or to get a copy of her new book, Real Life, you can visit SharonSalzberg.com. This has been the Meta Hour podcast on the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy. And may you live with ease.